This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit WOGCC.com. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad you're here. Ready to get right into the Word today. We're going to continue going through the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bible with you today, or if you're following along on version, you can go ahead and pull out your app or uh, what have you and go ahead and go to Philippians the third chapter, if you have missed any of the series, I would encourage you to go back. You can always listen for free to any of the messages online at wogcc.com. And, uh, but just to give you a quick catch-up, if you've missed the past couple of messages, Paul, the apostle, is in prison while he's writing this letter that we're about to read, and we've been reading for the past two weeks. And in this letter, he's writing to a church that he cares about very much. It's in a land called Philippi. These people are uh, made up of both Greeks and Jewish people who are in this church, and he's writing this letter to them because he planted this church, and Paul cares about these people. He wants to go see them, but he can't because he's under house arrest, and so his heart is aching for them, and he's wanting to convey certain messages to them to make sure that they stay on track because he doesn't want to see them get off track. He doesn't want to see them uh, become disbanded or there be any type of wedges of division uh, driven in between them because there's a lot of good things happening at the church at Philippi. And we all know that any time that good things are going on, that's when the enemy loves to try to drive wedges, right? I mean, we know that that is prime time for him to try to go, okay, let me see if I can stir this up and mess this up because it's going well. Well, Paul knew that things were going well at Philippi, so he wanted to make sure that was preserved and that continued. And so while he was in prison, he began to write this letter to this church that he loved so dearly. And we talked the first week about love as the foundation because Paul was really stressing the importance of love. And then last week, uh, we saw where Paul continued that theme of love and built on that foundation of love by talking to the church at Philippi about preserving unity amongst their ranks and making sure that that was extremely important. And this week, as we see where Paul is taking this letter just a step further, still building on the foundation of love, still building upon unity, he begins to talk about the weight of forsaking everything for the cause of Christ. So if you're taking notes today and you're a note taker, I want you to write this title down, For the Sake of Christ. And what Paul is about to do is he is about to drop a mind-blowing bomb on everybody because he's about to bring a great weight to the greatness of the treasure of Jesus Christ. He's about to show these people how important, how truly important Jesus Christ is. I think a lot of times in Christianity, if we're not careful... We can treat Jesus like he is an accessory to life or like he's some type of spice to our lives to make our lives better or enhance our lives because we're doing pretty good on our own. Why not just sprinkle a little Jesus on it? It'll make it better. And that's how a lot of times people treat Christianity. But Paul is trying to take the idea of following Jesus and committing your life to Jesus to the utmost degree of extreme. I mean, he's wanting them to feel the weight. He's wanting to see how intense this life is that we should forsake all for the sake of Christ. So the main question that I want to ask you here before we read Philippians chapter 3 is going to be the question that's going to be woven throughout this entire message is that do you value Jesus above everything else in your life? Now, I know the Sunday school answer, yes. 
We all want to say, yes, that's, of course, I value Jesus above everything in my life. I'm a church, ain't I? I mean, come on, pastor, cut me some slack. I'm not asking if you showed up for church. I'm not asking if you read your Bible or if you prayed. I'm not asking if you said a cuss word this morning or you did it. What I am asking is that do you value Jesus above everything else in your life? Because there's a lot of weight to that question. And as we'll see through Paul's writing, we'll see exactly how much weight this will bring to our lives personally. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. We're going to read through the whole thing, then we're going to go back and talk about it. Verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you, it's not tedious, but for you it's safe. So we see Paul's concerned here. I'm not writing these things because you already know it, and I'm like, oh, i got to tell them this again. No, he's saying it's actually going to be good for you. It's actually helping to keep you safe. So I'm writing this to you. I want you to beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have more. Because here's my criteria, if you will, is what Paul's about to say. He's about to run through his resume. Verse 5, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee, concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted for loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained. I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. But I press on that I may lay hold to that which Christ Jesus has also laid a hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. I forget those things which are behind and I reach forward to the things that are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's Paul bringing a lot of weight to this lifestyle that you and I are called to live, that you and I have received through faith in Jesus. And as we notice in the very beginning, he said, this isn't tedious for me to write this, even though I know you've heard it and I know that you understand it because this is what makes you a Christian, is that you understand the gospel. You understand that you are a sinner. You understand that you need Jesus, that you need forgiveness. You understand that he's the way, the truth, and the life. You put your faith in the finished work of the cross. I know you understand these things. So it's not tedious for me to write these, though, because it's safe, because I want you to beware of the dogs. Now, what's he talking about? Doberman Pinchers? Is he talking about bulldogs, Rottweilers, maybe? I mean, they can be a little vicious. Maybe he's talking about Taco Bell dogs, because those can be pretty vicious, too. (laughs) Taco Bell dogs can be the worst, little ankle, ankle biter dogs. Is that what he's talking about? No. 
We know that he's not talking about an actual dog. So who is he referring to? Well, we need to understand the cultural context in which Paul was writing this letter to the church in Philippi so we can have a greater understanding of what he means. We also see Paul addressing the same group that he's addressing as dogs in the book of Galatians when he wrote the letter to that church. Now, the dogs that he was warning about in verse 2 is a group of people called Judaizers. These are a group of people who at that time were claiming to be Christians, but they were against the gospel message that Paul preached of free grace. The Judaizers believed that salvation was available for the Gentiles, but only if they first converted to Judaism through circumcision and observing all the law and feasts. So basically, they just added Christ to the law instead of looking at him as the fulfillment of of the law. So basically the Judaizers were the people who said, yeah, we're going to follow Jesus, but we're going to mix in all of these other things as well. We're going to mix in following all the law, all the do's and don'ts and all the things that you have to do in order to be accepted by God. So yeah, you'll be accepted by God because of Jesus. We like Jesus. We're going to follow him. But also for you to be accepted by God, you have to do all of the things that are in the law. So we're still going to keep all the observances of the law. We're still going to keep all the feasts. We're going to keep all those things just like we used to because that's part of our pathway to salvation. And that's what the Judaizers taught. The Judaizers taught that, yes, salvation was from Christ, but it was also by works. So they kind of put them both in a blender and hit the blend button and poured that smoothie and wanted you to drink it. But here's the problem with that, is that true salvation is a free gift. It's not by works. Amen? Not a little bit of works are going to save you. Not a lot of works are going to save you. No works are going to save you. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross alone can save you. That's it. Amen? Amen. Not that and then some, not and then the law also added to it. But the Judaizers were mixing it together and they would serve it to people And it almost tasted a little sweet, and part of it would confuse people and make them feel like, yeah, maybe this is kind of right. I don't know. And Paul is in prison, and he's going, I know this is happening, and I'm wanting to make sure that your doctrine stays straight. I'm wanting to make sure that where you put your hope for salvation is clear, and you actually understand that the only way you can be right with a holy God is not by your works, but it's through the cross of Christ because he took our sin. He bore all of our infirmities. He bore all of our injustice that we caused. He took all of that stuff on the cross for us. He took our punishment. And I want Jesus to be the primary focus in these Judaizers. They were mixing law and grace and works and trying to make everyone buy in to this thing that you could also be saved by all these other things. So they would say, yeah, you can be a Christian, but you have to be circumcised before you can be a Christian. Oh, and you have to start observing this feast. Oh, and you have to start doing this, and you have to stop doing this. Otherwise, you're not really a true follower of Jesus. So they would say, you've got to be a, a practicing Orthodox Jew as well as all of these other things as well. And they would bring basically a works or law 2.0, if you will, to other people. Because you see here, Paul said, beware of the mutilation. What was he talking about there? Well, he was referencing the Judaizers' requirement 
of circumcision in order to be a Christian. So you had to be circumcised in order to be a Christian, just like you had to be circumcised as a Jewish man. And so he said, you've got to do this in order to be a Christian. He said, beware of that. You need, guys need to be aware of that. And also he says something really interesting here. He said, beware of the dogs, the evil workers, the mutilation. It's crazy because Paul calls these guys dogs and evil doers. Not my words, Paul's words. Take it up with him. That doesn't sound very Christian. Why did he use such strong words? Because he didn't want the focus to get off of Jesus. Because the moment that you and I get our focus off of Jesus and we think that we no longer need him, that we can kind of coast through life without him, and somehow our salvation is wrapped up in our good works, then we begin to treasure the things of this world more than we treasure Jesus. Then we begin to treasure our own accolades more than we treasure Jesus. Then we begin to value our goodness rather than focus on his goodness. Then it becomes about how good I can be and how well I can perform. My wife has a system that she uses with our children at home uh, because she homeschools them and she has certain chores and different things that they have to do in their schoolwork during the days as well. And she has a reward system called star tickets. And she takes these little tickets and they have stars on them. And when they get so many star tickets, then they can, you know, turn them in for a prize or a special trip to go eat somewhere that they like or what have you. And there's different prizes that she has kind of set out. gives them an incentive. And as I look at that, I see how many people are looking at their relationship with God like that, that they're trying to earn star tickets from God. They're trying to go, okay, God, maybe if I do enough good things for other people, then God was going to do something good for me. So we try to put God in our debt with our good behavior. Or we try to do this God you owe me thing by the way that we live our lives. And we wonder, you know, why is this happening or why is this not happening for me because I did this and I did this and I did this. And we go down our laundry list of works and good things because really at the end of the day, we're missing the point that it's all about Jesus and we're looking for our works to be the avenue to help us to get things in life that we think we want or think we need or things that we, quite frankly, just value above Jesus. But Paul said not to put our confidence in our works. So our confidence should not be in our good works. But if you want to talk about somebody who has a laundry list of good works that they've done, the Apostle Paul's going to win every time. Pretty good guy. Matter of fact, he said, let me tell you my resume. He said, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, he said, I've got more. In other words, I've got more star tickets than all of you. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. I have more star tickets than you. I just made that rhyme up. This poet didn't know it. Look at what Paul says. Verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Come on, somebody. <laughs> you look at Paul. He was circumcised on the eighth day. His parents followed everything they were supposed to follow. Paul was raised up in an environment 
in Israel, where he could call himself an Israelite, a, a man who grew up learning the Torah, loving the law of God, growing up in a good, strong family, being mentored as, as an apprentice by one of the top Pharisees in the land. His resume is deep. His family heritage was great. And not only was he an Israelite, but he was an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. If you look back in the Old Testament, you'll see there's a lot of significance attached to the tribe of Benjamin. When there were certain instances, when there were blessings that were given out, the tribe of Benjamin would get double portions of blessings. So there is a certain status to being a part of the tribe of Benjamin. It's like you are an elite Israelite. It's like you're cut out of the best cloth that you could possibly be cut out of as an Israelite. It's like not only is the guy a Jew... Not only was he raised up the way he was raised, but he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. It's like it's not even fair. It's like this guy is awesome. And then he says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I had social status. I had clout. Everyone thought well of me. If Paul was coming over to your house for dinner, you would clean your house extra good. When we start cleaning our house, sometimes my children say, who's coming over for supper? <laughs> No one. We're cleaning our house because we care about our things. It doesn't always mean someone's coming over. But if it were Paul, we would definitely get to work scrubbing the floors and making sure everything was pristine because he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. People thought well of him. He was a man of integrity, a man who carried himself with confidence and carried himself well. He was well-liked. He was well-respected among the people of Israel. And then he goes on talking about himself more. He said, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He said, man, I was a Pharisee, and I was a Pharisee that was persecuting the church. If you look at someone who is a, a, a God-fearing Hebrew, they're not going to follow that blasphemous Jesus, the one who came claiming that he was God and he was here to redeem mankind. No, that's not how things were supposed to work in the eyes of your average Jew. And so I'm going to go persecute the church just to show how zealous I am for God. You see, people thought that was awesome that he was doing that. People weren't like, oh, no, Paul's a bad guy. No, they said, Paul, wow, I should be persecuting the church too because Paul is awesome. Look at how zealous he is for God. Look at how much he loves God. He's willing to go after these Christians because they shouldn't be spreading that news and they shouldn't be saying the things that they're saying because this guy knew his Bible. He knew his Torah. This guy knew the Old Testament, memorized it, okay? If you were a Pharisee, you had the Old Testament memorized. Some people have problems memorizing like two or three scriptures for their Awana class, you know. Paul memorized the whole Old Testament. And not only could memorize it, but could argue it and articulate it and speak it very, very well. He was a Pharisee. I know that a lot of times when we say that word Pharisee, there's like negative connotations attached to it because we look at Pharisees during Jesus's day and they were kind of the bad guys, if you want to put good guys and bad guys, if you want to put people in that category. Well, just because you were a Pharisee doesn't mean you were a bad guy. And not every Pharisee was in the same camp as a lot of the Pharisees that dealt with Jesus. These guys that dealt with Jesus were just arguing that he was the, not the Messiah because they were so smart and because they were so accomplished and they didn't like the way he did things. 
Because the Pharisees of Jesus' day, for the majority of them anyways, the majority of Pharisees were so smart in their heads, but they didn't see the one that was prophesied and promised about when he showed up on the scene because they thought it had to be their way. They became puffed up. They became prideful. Jesus said, you guys look awesome on the outside. He said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. Man, you guys look awesome, but on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. But the Pharisees were cleaned up guys. These guys knew their stuff, and Paul was a Pharisee. Not only was he a Pharisee, but he was taught by the top Pharisee of his day. It would be like if you had some skills to be able to play some basketball. Not like me, but that's okay. (laughs) But if you had some skills, and all of a sudden Michael Jordan was going to come and mentor you and teach you, you would be like, whoa, this is crazy. I can't believe he's going to mentor me and teach me. That would be the equivalent of Paul's mentor that he had to teach him how to grow as a Pharisee. Wow. This guy had a family heritage. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew the Bible. He was, had, had, had done a lot of good things. His religious activity was through the roof because he was persecuting the church. He was very zealous. And then he said, concerning the righteousness that was in the law, I was blameless. Paul was a moral guy. It wasn't like Paul was some cheater or a liar or a thief. Paul was a very upstanding moral individual, serving God, living for God, doing the things that he believed were right. The problem with those things, every one of those things on that list, which as we read it, we go, that's a pretty good list, is that those things don't lead to salvation, do they? Now, These things don't make me right in the eyes of God, no matter if I become extremely perfect at them. Even though Paul had the extreme amount of discipline, could you imagine the amount of discipline it would take to exercise all of those things at the level in which Paul did? That's why he said with great confidence. You guys may have had confidence in the flesh, but if anybody has reason to have confidence in the flesh, I've got more reason to have confidence in the flesh. You seeing that now? Paul had extreme... He said if if, if salvation was based off of the flesh, he said... I've got more than everybody. Here's who I am. And he went down his resume. And Paul compares his resume with the things that the Judaizers taught uh, that led to righteousness. And if righteousness or right standing or right relationship with God could be obtained by works, Paul would have been ahead of the pack. You and I would be hopeless, all right? Paul would be so far out ahead of us because of his works. Because none of us can say that stuff. I mean, this guy had, he has it all going for him, it seems like. Paul would have been ahead of the pack. He would have been in the elite class of those who had the discipline to uphold a lifestyle that appeared to be in order. But what does Paul think about his resume after knowing Christ? What did he say about his resume? All those things we just went through and how awesome Paul is. Well, let's see what he says. Philippians 3 and verse 7. He said, But all of these things that were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. All of these things that Paul just rattled off that he could have confidence in, if he wanted to put his confidence in his flesh, 
in his own works, in his own accomplishments, in his own trophies and accolades, man, he's got quite a bit that he could go, I'm a pretty good guy. I've got the family heritage to back me up. I've got the social status. I've got the biblical knowledge. I'm very zealous and religious, and I'm extremely moral. I've got all these things going for me, but all these things I count as rubbish when it comes to knowing Christ. Wow. He said, these things that were once gained to me, I have counted as loss for Christ. You see, we see that knowing Jesus outshines obtaining the treasures of this life. Paul is trying to bring great weight to knowing Jesus. He's trying to let us know that knowing Jesus Christ outshines obtaining all of the good things in this life. Because as we look at that list, we would all agree, those are all pretty good things. We would go, wow, those are good things, but they pale in comparison to knowing Jesus. Think about Paul's resume for a moment. Just think about that. These are the exact same things that we seek after in our lives. These are the same things people think they need to have in order to receive salvation. They think, I have to have these things in order to be accepted by God. And guess what? You are wrong. You don't have to have those things to be accepted by God. He wants you to come just as you are. The only thing that can reconcile or make our wronged relationship right with a holy and perfect God is Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus Christ and himself crucified. That's why the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, he even said, listen, I've done all kinds of crazy things. I've done great things. I've spoken in front of kings. I've been in prison. I've been shipwrecked. And I only am going to carry this one thing with me that I say matters in life, and that's knowing Jesus. He said, it's Christ and himself crucified. He said, that's all I know. Well, Paul, I would, I would really like to sit with you and, and, and begin to allow you to articulate all of the things that you understand. Listen, I really don't know anything except Christ and himself crucified. That's a short sermon. He said, I don't know anything else. That's all that really matters at the end of the day is Christ and himself crucified because he is the treasure of my life. Nothing else outshines Jesus. He's trying to give weight to these Philippians because he wants them to understand that these Judaizers that are trying to come in and mix works and law and the gospel together and blend it up and serve it to them, that that is poison. And he's trying to say it's not going to save you because only knowing Jesus is going to make you right in the eyes of God. Seeking the treasures of this life will not make you right in the eyes of a holy God. Only knowing Jesus will make you righteous. Not knowing Jesus and then trying to be a good Jew to stay in the flock won't cut it. Only knowing Jesus will do. Only knowing Christ and himself crucified will do. So here's what Paul was saying in essence. Paul was saying that it's possible for you to love your family, for you to take them to church, for you to be respected in the community, for you to have a good reputation and to know the Bible and to be religious and zealous about it and be very moral and have all of these things figured out in your life and then mean nothing if you don't know Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. He said, I count them as rubbish. 
Because those things are not the path to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. Should we not want to have good family heritage? Should we not want to be respected by other people in the community? Should we not be moral? Should we, should we not be zealous for our cause? Is that what I'm saying? No, absolutely not. If that's what you're hearing, you're not hearing the message of the gospel because those things are not a pathway to salvation, but rather those things then, once we find Jesus and treasure Him, those things become the fruit of our salvation. In other words, I can go to Dr. Phil and try to let him fix my life. And you know what? He'll probably give some pretty decent advice. And if I have the discipline in order to do what needs to be done, I can probably have some good results. But the problem is, is I can change my behavior without changing my heart. But if I allow my heart to be changed, then it's going to affect every area of my life, not just the things I don't like. Not just the things I'm trying to hide from everyone. When I know Jesus and I treasure that above all else, all of a sudden it doesn't become about me trying to fix something in my life. It becomes allowing Him to have the seat of the throne in my life. So now alcohol doesn't have the the, the seat of the throne in my life. Now pornography doesn't have the throne of my heart. Now lusting or lying or gossip or envy or hate doesn't have the throne in my life. Instead of me trying to fix all of those things in my life, I allow myself to become captivated by the mercy and grace and love and truth of Jesus Christ. And His truth begins to set me free because He changes my heart. That's the power of the Gospel. But if we have this idea that in order for me to be accepted by God, I have to be perfect, then I'm never going to be accepted by God because I'm not perfect and you're not perfect. We're all hopeless. Paul is better than us and he counts all those things as rubbish. It's not about people trying to out-spiritualize one another or out-church one another. It's about us seeing our need as Jesus Christ and pursuing Him with the holy, righteous fire and passion in our heart and never letting go. Clinging to the cross of Christ and not how good I can be because no matter how good I become or how moral or decent and upright in the eyes of man I become, I never stop needing Jesus. Ever. Ever. Ever, ever. I never stop needing Jesus. How often do I stop needing Jesus? Never. <laughs> I never stop needing Jesus. Here's the problem. Is that if we have all those things and obtain all those good things in life that oftentimes we treasure and we don't have Christ, what it really does, the treasures of this life will mask our true spiritual condition. It'll actually mask our true spiritual condition. It's like taking a homeless person and giving him a shave and a bath and a bottle of cologne and a toothbrush and an Armani suit, but he's still homeless. At the end of the day, he's still homeless and wretched and needs a home. And he's probably going to go right back to the same filth that he went to before. And you can go buy him another Armani suit. He can have a thousand Armani suits. He can have the best tailor in the world. But he's still homeless. He doesn't need a new suit. He needs a home. You and I don't need to just clean up our act and try to be better people. 
You and I need a heart transplant. We need a new home. You can dress up this body. You can try to make the appearance that everything in your life is going well. You can mask your spiritual condition by you trying to chase after all of the luxuries in this life. You can try to mask your true spiritual condition, which is dead in sin, apart from Christ. Because He makes all things new. He gives hope to the hopeless. He's the one that took your sin and my sin our shame, not just the wrong things we've done, not just the bad things that we've done, but our outright rejection as humanity towards the love and grace and kindness of God who loved us but gave us a choice and we chose to defy Him. And by just and righteous judgment, you and I deserve the penalty of death for our sin, for our rejection, for our spitting in the face of the love of God. But instead of us receiving that death as judgment, Jesus took your punishment and my punishment on the cross. And He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His stripes, we are healed and made whole. Amen? That's the weight of the gospel. Anything less is not the gospel. Anything that would try to mix in works in order to say you have to do this and have to do that in order to be accepted by God is not the gospel. Only putting your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ is the gospel. And that's it. Because He's the hope of the world. Amen? And if we pursue the treasures of this life, it's going to mask our true spiritual condition. The trap of the enemy is that he knows that the treasures of this life are going to mask our spiritual condition. And if we pursue these things as a means to right standing with God, then we mask our deficiency. We mask our need for Christ. We mask the only thing that can truly make us whole and make us right in the eyes of God. Because at the end of the day, it's not going to be about what kind of house I lived in, what kind of job I have, what kind of title I had. At the end of the day, when I'm drawing my last breath, all that's going to matter is, is my heart right with God? That's one of the last questions that people ask when people know that they're in their final moments of life. A pastor or a family member or someone will inevitably asks the question, have you made peace with God? Have you made peace with God? In other words, is your heart right with God? I don't want to wait to the end of my life to know that my heart is right with God. I don't know about you, because this life is a vapor, and I don't know how much longer I have. None of us know how much longer we have. Every breath, every heartbeat is a gift. And it shows the grace of God in operation in my life. That I am still here for a purpose. That I'm still here for a reason. And I better live that for the glory of God. So then all of the good things that come out of my life then redirect people to God's glory and not how good I am. It doesn't become about how special I can be and how polished my trophies are. Instead, I just become like the moon that reflects the sun. It's His light shining in my life. It's not even my life. You know, the moon has no light of its own. All it does is just reflect. And that's what you and I are called to be. We're supposed to be reflectors of the glory of God. We're supposed to allow Him to work in our heart what needs to be worked. To submit to His will and His way and trust in Him and learn from Him and grow in our relationship with Him and know how to have that relationship with Him.
So it becomes more than just showing up at church on Sunday. It becomes a lifestyle. And, and then all of a sudden, he's my treasure. And my life reflects his glory. And people see Jesus working in me. Let's keep on reading. Um, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8 says, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid a hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind and I reach forward to the things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, I believe that Paul is asking us this question. Have we found something in Christ worth losing everything for? Have we found something in Christ that's worth losing everything for? You know, in verse 13 there, he, he says something that we often quote as Christians, and we do so in a proper context. I don't think it's a wrong context, but I don't think based off of what he said earlier that that's exactly what he meant. He said that I forget those things which are behind me and I press on to the things that are ahead. He said I, I forget those things which are behind me. And I think the way I've always preached it and probably a lot of the times the way you've heard it preached or the way you've interpreted it or read it uh, when you've heard that scripture we often associate that scripture with the bad things in our past right i forget those things which are behind me in other words i'm a new creation in christ old things are passed away all things become new and that's right and that's true and that's and that's proper and i agree with that full-heartedly but i think we're only looking at one side of the coin when we say that because as I look at what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to the church at Philippi and what I believe the Holy Spirit is still communicating to the church of Jesus Christ today is not only should we forget the bad things in our life that have held us down, the mistakes we've made, all the pain, all the junk we've been through, but I think Paul was also saying, I forget the good things as well. In other words, I'm not lugging my trophies around with me and showing you how awesome I am. I'm not polishing my trophies either. I forget all of those things that are behind me, not just the negative things. I even, I, I'm even going to forget my accomplishments, okay? So I don't drag those things with me in order that I look at how good I've been. Last night, I took my family to a wrestling event in Milwaukee. We went and watched WWE. I took my whole family... And I told my wife, I, she's never been before, and this is my fourth time to have gone to a wrestling event. I told my wife, I said, I said, um, I said you're going to see some interesting characters here. I was just kind of trying to prep her. And I wasn't talking about the people in the ring. Um, I was talking about the people that were going to be watching the event that like to dress up like their favorite wrestler. Um, it's kind of like going to a Star Wars convention or something like that. <laughs> I mean, you've got people dressed from head to toe in all kinds of crazy outfits. You have people spending ridiculous amounts of money on outfits. And I said, one of the things that you're going to see that blows me away every time I go and I see this is you'll have people that have replicas, exact replicas of the WWE wrestling championship belts 
I mean, they are the same ones that the wrestlers carry, and those things cost $1,200 a piece, all right? And you'll see people walking around with two of them, slung over, one over each shoulder. That just cost that person $2,400 to carry a belt around that they didn't win. Actually, the guy that won it didn't win it either, but that's okay. That's beside the point. But they're carrying these wrestling belts around, and they're walking around with these belts. And as I saw that image last night, and as I'm preaching this morning, all I can think is that when I lay those things behind me that are the past and I press forward to the things that are ahead, I'm not just thinking about the negative things. I'm thinking about I'm not going to carry my belts on my shoulders. I'm not going to carry my accolades and my championships and the things that I've, I've done well in life and just parade those things around. I don't want to parade around my losses and I don't want to parade around my failures. And we take that scripture to pressing toward the mark to mean that I'm laying those negative things behind. But what about those trophies that we would want to throw over our shoulders? The things that we would want to hold on to because they mean something to us. Paul's saying, no, no, no. I'm looking at all of that as a loss because I'm narrowing my focus to Christ. I'm narrowing my focus to Christ because the danger in us carrying our trophies around with us is that all of a sudden my trust begins to fluctuate from being on the cross of Christ to, I've been pretty good, or at least I've been better than those people. At least I've done better than my parents did with me. At least I'm more successful and know how to manage money better than my brother or sister. At least I can do this well or do that well. And then we begin to put ourselves in different classes when we carry our trophies around and we look for salvation to be earned for how good we've been and how bad other people have been because, oh, we're so spiritual. Oh, I know I pray more than those people. It's obvious. You can tell I have a relationship with God. (laughs) They don't. You can see the fruit from my life. And when I carry those things around... I don't realize what I'm doing. And it's part of the deception, the same deception Paul was trying to protect the church in Philippi from the Judaizers, of allowing your mindset and your heart to drift back towards a works-based mentality that you somehow think that you earned or deserved this. And then you get into this entitlement mentality towards God. Why am I going through this? God, you owe me. Let me go down my list of how good I've been and what I've done. Or we begin to get mad at God or we begin to forget about God altogether because we're almost like, God, I got it from here. Thanks for the, thanks for the push. Kind of like when you're pushing your kid in a swing and you're trying to teach them how to get the momentum going and distribute their weight properly so they can get it going. God, thanks for the push. I just need a boost. No, 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 no. That's what happens when we begin to carry our trophies around with us. So let's go back to the question of have we found something in Christ worth losing everything for? Do you know Jesus? Is he your treasure? The heart of Christianity, the heart of being a disciple is one that everything else dulls in comparison to the joy of knowing Jesus. I want to share with you one more scripture before we go this morning. Hebrews chapter 11 think this is real interesting. We don't know necessarily who wrote Hebrews because the name of the writer just doesn't come out in anywhere prominently, but most Bible scholars and myself included believe that it was Paul 
the same guy that wrote the letter to the church in Philippi that we've been reading wrote Hebrews as well, just because of the writing styles and different themes throughout. And looking at this, here in Hebrews chapter 11, he's going through all of these people who did things by faith. And in verse 23, he says, By faith Moses, you guys remember Moses? By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they weren't afraid of the king's command. But by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses who was hidden away as a baby, floated down the river, and then, because of the sovereignty of God, is seen by the Pharaoh's daughter, goes and takes this baby, and all of a sudden now, this child becomes a part of the house of Pharaoh, who was actually supposed to die. (laughs) This child was supposed to be put to death, just like all of the other males by the order of the Pharaoh, but then the very one who ordered the death of all of these children, now this guy gets to be raised up in this house. Instead of being raised up as a slave, he's raised up in the king's house. Egypt was the superpower of that day, okay? Superpower in the world. We're talking pyramids, gold statues, and gold canes and mummies and stuff like that talking about the gold statues with the goatees and the headdresses. I mean, Moses was living it up in Pharaoh's house, actually in line to be Pharaoh in a, in a certain order. Wow. And instead of choosing to live in Pharaoh's house with all the riches that Pharaoh's house had to offer, he chose to suffer with the slaves. He chose to deny the ability to live a life of comfort. Why? He said, for the reproach of Christ. Greater riches than the treasures in Egypt because he was looking towards a reward. I don't know how well you know your Bible or not, but Moses lived 1,500 years before Jesus Christ. So what in the world is the writer, or what in the world is Paul talking about here when he said that he was, he, he was he, instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin, that he was esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt? Hmm. You see, the promise of salvation was coming, and Moses knew that. Moses knew about the promise of salvation through the lineage of Abraham. He knew about the promise that was given. He didn't know his name would be Jesus. He didn't know when he would be born. He didn't know when he was coming, but he knew he was coming because he knew God was faithful. And even before Moses ever knew about the plan of God, before Moses ever knew about any of this, he said, you know what? I don't know what his name is. I don't know when he's coming, but I would rather do what God wanted me to do than enjoy the pleasures of living in the house of Pharaoh. Because that's the greater reward. I want to do what God wants me to do for His purpose, for His glory, because it's going to serve the purpose of Christ. You know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. 
Christ means anointed one, Messiah. And Paul knew that the Christ was coming. And he said, I would rather live amongst these people and lead them out of this land of slavery and do what God has instructed me to do because I know that it's for the purpose of Christ. He did that by faith. He didn't see it happen. He didn't see the fruition of it. But he knew that it was a part of the journey because he had faith in God. So he found something in Christ that was worth losing everything for. It was more important for him to serve that cause than it was for him to live in Pharaoh's house. So have you found something in Christ worth losing everything for? Forsaking everything behind, surrendering all as we sang earlier, pressing into Christ, pursuing to know him more, growing in your love and your awe for him, where Jesus truly becomes the treasure of your life above everything else. I want to ask you to bow your head for just a moment. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.